Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hi, everybody. Today is February 29th, 2016. Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. And this is The Mixed Experience. It's a weekly podcast by a mixed chick sharing mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. I'm your host and resident mixed chick, Heidi DeRoe. Thanks so much for joining me today. I have another fantastic debut novelist phenom on the line today to talk to you about her wonderful book, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Um, But before we get to talk to her, I do want to make a couple of announcements. One, I know you've heard it before, my labor of love, the thing that is keeping me from finishing book two, actually, very honestly, because I spend so much time trying to raise the money. Uh, This project is now trying to raise money. In fact, we're doing our annual Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign, and we're trying to raise $10,000. We are just shy of $4,000 right now after a week. So thank you guys. Thank you all so much for those of you who have donated and are already supporting this project that means so much to me, but I think means so much to so many people. And uh, with the funding, uh, it makes it all possible. Just by the way, this is an all-volunteer effort. I spend about 20 or 30 hours per week working on the festival for free. Yeah, it's a lot. And in fact, no one who works on the festival gets paid at all. Not our graphic designer, not our web designer. Nobody gets paid. And we offer it all for free. So we need your money. So please go to the Indiegogo campaign, um, Mixed Remix Festival 2016. You can search for it. You can go to our website, www.mixedremix.org, and click on the Donate page. And then you can click through to the Indiegogo campaign We have fantastic perks, like a signed CD from Ziggy Marley, yes, himself. He's supporting the festival. Very exciting. We have fantastic brand-new T-shirts, and the only place you can get them is through the Indiegogo campaign. Or if you're a volunteer, you can also be a volunteer and get one, but pay the money, guys. We need the money. We have these fabulous pouches, these zippered pouches. Who always needs a zippered pouch? Me, probably you. Uh, That's only $10. Please donate. It means so much to us. And then stay tuned for the full festival schedule. We're going through all the submissions, and just knockout talent is going to be part of the festival. We'll make that announcement probably in the next two and a half, three weeks. So stay tuned. All right. I'm breathless. Uh, I'm excited. I have a fantastic guest on today. Um, Her name is Caitlin Greenidge, and she received her BA from Wesleyan University and her MFA from Hunter College. Her work has appeared in The Believer, Guernica, The Feminist Wire, At Length, Green Mountains Review, Afrobeat Journal, The Tottenville Review, and American Short Fiction. She's originally from Boston. She now lives in Brooklyn. Her debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, an excellent book, by the way, is on sale on March 8th, but we're talking about it today, and you can pre-order it. I hope you will. I'm super excited to talk to Caitlin today. 
on our show. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, yay. Um, I'm just going to kick this off with the traditional first question and realize there is no right answer. But the first question is, what are you? What am I? Yes. Um, uh, I am many things. <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm a youngest daughter and sister. Um, I am a Bostonian who no longer lives in Boston and hasn't for a long time. Uh, I am a black woman from New England. Uh, my dad is from, my dad's family is from Barbados and my mom's family is partly from New New Hampshire and Virginia. Um, and they also have, uh, connection to the Lumbe Native American tribe, which isn't recognized as a tribe because of um, intermarriage with African Americans, but um, that's how they ended up in New Hampshire. And uh, all I'm all those things, I guess. <clears throat> I love it. It's the right answer. Woohoo! Yay! You got it right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we kick the show off with that question each week because it is the question that people who are um, mixed by parentage, like, you know, that first generation often get. And it Mm -hmm. is always such an absurd question because everyone wants to answer the question with an essay answer. Um, It's so complicated, right? Um, Anyway, yes, so I love your answer. We met at Breadloaf. Now, could it be it was six years ago almost? Yeah, like, Resolve 2010, yeah. And I remember um, hearing your reading, and I feel like maybe you also shared just a little bit more of your work with me, but in your reading, you were working on what obviously became at least part of We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Can you tell me a little bit about the genesis of the story for you? What, what were the origins of the story? Um, the origins of the story were that um, I became interested in uh, families who had tried to raise their kids with chimps because I heard about this book that was published in the 1920s called The Age and the Child um, by these two married anthropologists who had tried to raise their son with a chimp for a year, and then they wrote about it, and um, there's, they, people weren't into that. They thought it was really wrong that they did that. And they stopped talking about it. They gave up the chimp. They kind of, it was kind of like a disaster. And their son later on um, ended up committing suicide. So I thought that was a really interesting story. And then I did some more research. And um, it's very kind of, you know, people periodically try to raise their child alongside a chimp. And it always ends really badly for everybody involved. So I got interested in that just as like a dramatic arc of a story. Um, and so that's where the idea came from and how I started writing about it. Well, it, what I love about it is that it actually comes at this, this story, this central intrigue at it from several different angles, but it's narrated primarily by Laurel, the teenage daughter. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about her. Oh, um, it's actually Charlotte. Laurel is the mom. I'm um, sorry, Charlotte. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so she is, um, She's a, a teenager. It's, it's, the book takes place in the early 1990s. She's 14 years old. Um, the rest of her family, for various reasons, as the book goes on and becomes clear, are um, really buying into the idea that they're part of this experiment, um, seemingly unquestioningly, and are all pretty enthusiastic. And she's the one naysayer 
um, the one kind of cynical person, partly because of her age, because she's 14, um, and partly just because of her temperament. And so um, she narrates most of the book because she is the skeptical voice. Um, she has kind of that critical eye for, for relaying what's happening around her. Um, but she also is, she's an outsider. So she has grown up in um, in in, in uh, Dorchester, in Boston. Um, her parents have kind of kept her away from her fellow classmates because they're a little bit obsessed with class and kind of with bettering yourself, and they, they don't want her to get have bad influences in her um, public school. So she's just basically only hung out with her sister and her parents, and her mom is kind of lovingly restrictive about the music she can listen to and the food she can eat, and she can't eat any junk food and all that kind of stuff. So she feels um, cut off from her classmates in Boston, and then when she moves to this nearly all-white town in the Berkshires, she at first is kind of excited because she thinks that maybe this will be a space where um, she will uh, be finally be popular. She's very naive and very optimistic, and she knows from TV that in TV, um, the black student is always kind of the more popular one um, in really, um, you know, cliche sitcoms. That's the kid who's kind of stylish. So and, and in the notes, so she's, hard she's when I so naive. <laughs> I think 
you are probably familiar with and listeners to your show are probably familiar with um, when people talk about uh, uh, identities of marginalized people, it's often in a monolith. And so um, for black people, the black experience in America is usually the southern black experience in America. And sometimes the, the West Coast and black experience, sometimes California, I guess like the South in California. Um, but there are these whole swaths of the country where black people are like the Midwest and the American West and New England um, that don't really get included in the narrative. And, and those places have really, as everybody does, have, have really specific identities. Like I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, like I've, I've heard people from other um, ethnicities say the same thing. Like I've heard um, Jewish friends say like, you know, so much of Jewish American identity is New York Jewish American identity. And it, and it excludes or I, I feel inclusion if I'm not from that area even though I am of that ethnicity just because my references are slightly different or my understanding of my way in the world is different. Um, it's so interesting so, to think about mm-hmm. like racial or cultural identification that way because it's so depend it's so dependent on um, the landscape you're in whether or not mm-hmm. people consider that an authentic experience. Right. But, you know yeah. I'm from Oregon that's how mm-hmm. we say it, not Oregon. Mm-hmm. And people, I remember, you know, when I was on book tour and I'd go around and people would say, there are black people in Oregon? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in fact, there are. Mm-hmm. It's, a very, yeah. it's a very particular, um, it's a particular and different experience, but it is part of the black American experience experience, which is diverse in itself. Yeah, and I, I like, I think you said that word authentic, and I think that's also a really interesting word, because I think um, oftentimes when your experience diverges from that, you run the risk of being told that your experience is not authentic, or somehow you're not really a part of that identity anymore, which is ridiculous when you <laughs> when you really break it down. But right. um, but I was really interested in in the different ways that people parse identity and have rules about what is and what isn't a part of that identity. Um, and you know I think it's really complicated because I do think that there is such a thing as um, a black identity in America or black identities in America. And um, I think blackness is a really rich topic and rich cultural force um, and contains multitudes and is really awesome. Um, but I also think that it is something that um, can get really con- can can start to get really conscriptive when people aren't don't have large enough imagination to include all of these kind of different experiences. Like for me, what's really interesting about um, blackness is that it does contain so many multitudes, and that um, you can have you can have a character like I don't know you can have a, a cultural figure like Sun Ra, and you can have a cultural figure like Ben Carson. And both of those men are are black, and I can identify things about both those men that tell me that they are part of the black experience, but they are two polar opposites, you know? Oh, my goodness. And then, yes, and then Ben Carson wants to be a racial police officer. What? Exactly, yes. Barack Obama's black. Like, what the hell? And similarly, when people say, well, Barack Obama isn't black, that's just like a really crazy conversation because you're like, well, then why is everybody hating him? Because I don't understand. Like, <laughs> you know, I, this type of hatred does not come. Whatever. That's another conversation. But um, I, I, it's just, just so um, it can get really frustrating and really tiring 
Um, but I do think it is something when it can get frustrating and tiring when the, it feels like the conversation isn't progressing or when people are trying to police other people or when people are trying to um, negate other people's experiences. But just in general, the fact that um, uh, blackness is so elastic and can contain those two polar opposite people, and I can say as both of them, those are both, besides just around their, obviously, their appearance, but besides their appearance, there's something in their way about the world that is a part of blackness is really interesting to me. <clears throat> I love that word elastic. I need to think about that some more. I want to use that often. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, you, you are playing the role of a trickster here a little bit as well because, I mean, <laughs> it's a black family that's going to raise a chimp. Like, mm-hmm. okay, um, <laughs> like you've walked right into all of the um, ways in which, well, I don't even know. I feel like I'm going to get in trouble if I keep talking about <laughs> kind of the, the stereotypes that you're tramping on and you're yeah. turning inside out. Like, what were what were your thoughts or even concerns about placing the, I don't, I don't even know what I'm asking right now. Well, like, yeah, girl, no, why, why I mean, did you do this? It's a challenge. <laughs> it, yeah, it was a challenge to myself, and it was a challenge to a reader. Um, and it, it's both like a really cruel challenge, and, and um, uh, part of me just wanted to see if I could do it as a, as a conceit. And then once I started writing it, it was like, well, how do you actually turn this um, very constructed um, – constructed problem into a story that is actually lived in and that it could stand on its own as a story. Um, so that just became like a craft question. And then also, um, I, I think I, what I wanted to do with this is um, to have people, I, I don't know, I feel like there's, so I was listening um, earlier today to um, Victor Lavelle was on uh, Fresh Air today. I and he him. Yeah, he's wonderful, and and he was talking about um, he has a new novel out. <laughs> plugging from the other novel, he has a new novel out called The Battle of the Black Tom, that's based on H. P. Lovecraft's story. H. P. Lovecraft, of course, is a notorious racist, and the person who was interviewing him on NPR was a wonderful interviewer, but um, he kept lowering the interviewer kept lowering his voice when he said the word race, like he couldn't bring himself <laughs> to say it out loud, and so part of the part of the setup of this book is just like wanting to challenge that instinct that I think a lot of people have, which is to speak in really hushed terms about, um, about race. Um, when, you know, race is, uh, is a, a measure that is used to enact violence on a lot of different people. And, um, that kind of hushed terms towards it, I completely understand. And I also sometimes do because you don't know how to approach the subject. But um, it was a way to kind of force um, some sort of other approach to it, I guess. So the other part of it that I think is so um, wonderful and interesting is that I feel like you're writing and this, I don't know what the genre would be called, but I feel like you're the only woman of color I know who's writing like this, this kind of um, constructed uh, conceit of a story that still mm-hmm. has a heartbeat um, mm-hmm. but also has this satiric edge to it yeah. um, and 
obviously a very literary bent. And, you know, that space, I feel like, belongs to Matt Johnson, at least, on, Mm -hmm. you know, in African-American letters. But I don't know that women are writing this way. And I just, I thought it was so great because you have such rich and complex female characters. Is, Is this like your dedicated style or was that also a challenge you set for yourself or or is this the only way the story could come out? Um, I mean, like, the story is kind of like the setup. It, the story is basically a setup of a racist joke. You know, if you think about it, like, the setup of the story is a setup of, like, a horrible joke someone would tell you in a bar or something. So um, <laughs> part of me wanted wanted to play with that idea of humor. And then also um, I I was really I was really worried about the book kind of um, since I did want to talk, since I knew I had, like, these big things that I wanted to talk about, like, race and language and family, really big kind of universal themes like that, um, I was really worried that the, that, the, that the book would get really staid and kind of um, theoretical and kind of disappear up its own behind kind of thing. Like, I didn't want it to go into the, <laughs> I didn't want it to go into, like, abstract academic language. And so humor was a way to make sure that that wasn't happening and that it was still a book that was engaging with other people. And then as also as I was writing it, I was thinking more and more about what humor's uses are um, and that humor is, is used to both deflect and to attempt to connect. Um, but there's a great uh, Toni Morrison quote um, from an interview she did a few months ago where she talks about humor as a form of power um, and mm. that... Um, that's its primary purpose, that, that it is a form of power above all else. Um, well, this really me, resonated, yeah. Resonated yeah, with me. Yeah, part of me agrees with that and part of me doesn't, but I, I think it's, and then also I think it, um, for the characters in the book, um, they are a, a very, they are a family that uses humor to not talk about any of the issues, of, any of their feelings. Um, so that also became, as I started to write, became clear that that was something that I wanted to kind of explore for the characters, I guess. It's so interesting you say it's, you know, the idea of it is kind of like the setup for a bad joke that, mm-hmm. you know, you don't know if you should laugh at or not, mm-hmm. um, it, w- which, re- you know, makes me think about one of, you know, my missions, I hope, with my writing is to abolish the stereotype or the trope of the tragic mulatto. And and mm-hmm. this your book works in the same way where, you know, there I don't even want to share these images because I think they're spoilers, but there are moments in the book where I thought, oh my God, that is so absurd. And I thought I should be laughing, except there is something so um, true and um, heart, mm-hmm. <laughs> like heart stopping about it at the same time. But let me laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, I I can in my laughter I can recognize like all of the complication in this situation. Right. I don't know if I said that very well, but there were so many moments like that where I thought, oh, you know, this is this is genius. Of course, you know, you go you go for the laugh here, but you understand and and you feel in your body as you read the the heart rending part of it, the the tragic part of it as well. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think um, you know, there's a there is a certain type of I don't know. I feel like there are, there are people who understand like laughing um, in the face of a traumatic event, um, not in not in the way of like you know, there's laughing in the face of a traumatic event where either you are 
saying that the trauma didn't happen or you are still processing it, but also just after you have processed a, a traumatic thing that has happened to you and you can't help but laugh at it and you know that it's horrible and you, you, you know the pain that you or, who, or your loved one has gone through, but you also realize somehow the humor in it um, is a really interesting moment to me and one that I wanted to uh, explore as well, I guess. You you did it so, so well. Um, I'm just well, so excited you. for this book. It comes out on March 8th. Are you going to be touring around? Um, sort of. I'm going to be – so there's uh, readings in New York, in uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn on the 9th and 10th, and then I'll be in um, the Berkshires and South Hadley, Mass. on the 16th, and then in Boston on the 17th. Um, and then that is it for um, readings around. I mean, I'll be doing more readings in New York, but that's it for traveling. So, that, I mean, that's fantastic. I definitely want you, if you can, send me an email so I can post it so people oh, yeah, for who sure. are in those areas could uh, show up to support I you will. and get their book signed. Um, I'll have to find you at some other point to get my copy signed. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot of the people uh, who listen to the show are aspiring writers. What mm-hmm. would you say to them is your best advice if they're just beginning to put pen to page or they're just beginning to send out their work what's the advice that kept you going at that point um i think protect your writing time so take your writing time really seriously um which can be hard to do when you're beginning because it feels like why am i spending this time away from friends or family or um, social commitments for this thing that um, doesn't exist yet it but, still feels that way to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it still feels that way. But you have to protect it and I think take it seriously. And hopefully uh, when you're starting out, you have people in your life who will help you protect it. But um, that doesn't, that's not always – it takes a while for people to understand, like, what writing – like, you that you'll always be away for two or three hours at a time uh, <laughs> writing and not talking to people. Um is something that you 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 as a writer, or I as a, as a writer, had to adjust to, and then people in your life have to adjust to, I guess, sometimes. And then um, I think knowing or trusting your own instincts about something is really important too, and developing those instincts. So yeah. um, really listening, learning to listen to your own intuition, really listening when you are reading something and something feels off. Don't ignore it. Go back and figure out why it feels off. Or um, if you are going to send something to a friend and you have the instinct to say, don't send it. Or conversely, if you have the instinct to say, this needs, some, this needs this person to read it, follow those instincts because it's usually you are correct. And it's less like a mystical universe telling you things, something, but it's more like there's a deeper logic knitting together things in your brain that maybe have not risen to your consciousness yet, conscious level yet will become clear as you go further into whatever you're writing, but in the very beginning, um, follow those instincts that tells you when to keep things close and when things are ready to go out into the world and when to reach out to people and when and who to reach out to, too. You know, like sometimes you may feel an affinity to a writer or a certain place and you can't put into words why it's really important for you to get into contact with that person, but just go for it. And then it'll become clear why you, why you were drawn to that person or program or place or writing conference or whatever, um, once you once you actually do it. <clears throat> well, um, I think that's excellent advice. You're just about to take off with this book, which is so exciting. You just won um, in NEA. Hello. Yes. I know. Congratulations. 
Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, yes. that was a very big surprise. <laughs> yes. It's awesome. wonderful, wonderful news. Congratulations. Now, that means you're committed to doing a next project. Are you allowed to share at all what you're working on, or do you need to keep it close to your vest? Uh, I'm going to keep it close to the vest. I'm trying to figure out what, what, what the research part of it is going to be, but I'm excited to write something new. So, yeah, I'm excited. Um, how long will it take you? I have no idea. I really hope it doesn't take as long as this book took. So. <laughs> I, um, I'm asking that question for myself because I'm <laughs> six years out, six mm-hmm. years out with no book two, but the first book took me 12 years, so I figure yes, now yeah. I'm halfway there. You're halfway there, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caitlin, I am so excited for you. I'm so excited about this book. We love you, Charlie Freeman. Um, folks who are out there, pre-order it right now, right now from yeah. your bookstore, your library, or from Amazon, <laughs> wherever. Uh, go yeah. get this book. You're you're going to be delighted by it. It's so fantastic, and um, I'm so excited for you. So let me know about your dates, and we'll make sure people know where you are so they can go and um, give you a hug and get an autograph. Yes, I definitely will. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is wonderful. Thanks. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Take care, and I hope to see you soon. Thanks, Preston. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Oh, my gosh, she's great. Like, Also, she's, like, so smart, and she's very funny. Her book is also very funny. We Love You, Charlie Freeman is the book by Caitlin Greenidge. I hope you'll check it out. I think you'll love it. I definitely did. Um, it is also an Algonquin book. This publisher has very good taste in books, I must say. Um, anyway, uh, again, We Love You, Charlie Freeman by Caitlin Greenidge, G-R-E-E-N-I-D-G-E. Get it now. Thanks, you guys, so much for tuning in today. Uh, I'll be back next week, next Monday. I'm not sure about my guest, still a tentative uh, thing at this point, but I will be here, so I hope you'll tune in. If you have a chance, go over to iTunes and hit me up with a review. Come on, man. Wouldn't that be great? Just a, hey, I like listening to Heidi's show and the great guests she has. Something, something along those lines. It helps other people find the show as well. And if you could, please would um, donate to the Mixed Remix Festival. It's totally free. It's an all-volunteer project. It needs you, people who are interested in stories about the mixed racial and cultural experience. It would mean so much to me. You can tweet me at Heidi Durow or email me at Heidi at Heidi W. Durow. Uh, I look forward to talking to you next week again. Bye, guys. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.